to patreon.com slash house of decline that's patreon.com slash house of decline that's h-a-u-s of decline you can get so many fucking comics there so many fucking podcasts you, you entered into the discord have a conversation with me i'm a likable guy you want to talk to me right that's why you're listening to this podcast it's, it's parasocial candy for you absolute candy for you which you can get more of at patreon.com slash house of decline and that's the ad read we're gonna get into the show uh steven is not here today he's got some dad stuff that he's doing but in his stead we have a friend of the show wonderful cartoonist a wonderful zine maker printmaker rory blank uh, hello it's true. You can go to patreon.com slash house of decline today. <laughs> I let me tell you, I just subscribed right now. It's happened it's happening to me right now. It's all it's all coming together. It's all happening. Yeah. I've been subscribed for all of ten seconds now and suddenly my hand no longer hurts. I hurt my hand two years ago in a pro wrestling accident. Uh, where I, I fractured one of my metacarpals, and mm-hmm. I've, I've had extreme pain, which causes me to wear a weird glove all day. But looking at the bonus content on Patreon.com's House of Decline, uh, it doesn't hurt anymore. Yeah, the healing Patreon powers. You're, thank you for continuing our ad read into the into the guest <laughs> introduction, Rory. I appreciate that. Hey, you wear a weird glove. You're in pain all yeah. the time. You know who else yeah. was? Michael Jackson. So think about that. <laughs> think about that for a second um but um uh, we have rory on i have rory we have rory on to discuss a great rift in the cartooning world some very important cartoon news has arisen recently and that is of course the uh intense racism of dilbert creator scott adams (laughs) uh rory is is laughing because i looked at one of your bonus comments Oh, which which bonus comic were you looking uh, at? The penny arcade thing. Oh, the the penny arcade thing where where Gabe disappears and uh, Tycho cries because he never got to suck his cock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the content that you could. That's be the content you want right these, now. These hot penny arcade riffs. Penny arcade, the most relevant comic in the world. I'm doing doing these sick riffs on penny arcade. Uh, yeah, which uh, is another in, in the way. Yeah, the uh, these. Dilbert of comics uh, about video games. <laughs> the Dilbert of video games. Of of, I like the first one. The Dilbert of comics. It is because Dilbert isn't really a comic. It's uh, more of just a set of still images where uh, a strange libertarian guy's thoughts are transliterated directly into a easy to draw dog. Yeah. Um, to to wit. I, I know you're you're running the show here, but I, I have to ask you because I have to ask anybody when Dilbert comes up. Mm-hmm. When did you first read Dilbert? When I was eight years old, I was obsessed with Dilbert. I love Dilbert because it's the type of humor, especially like the early Dilbert stuff when it got mm-hmm. less overtly into the men's rights <laughs> movement. Uh, like early Scott Adams is his joke is save the whales are mammals mammals have hair shave the whales and to my eight-year-old mind that was this is the funniest thing i've ever heard i'm gonna read all the Dilbert books um and you know there were some jokes that i still think are funny to this day like um there was a joke about uh them attaching copper wire to their ceo so that they can generate electricity while he's spinning in his grave or their that's actually pretty good i I, I also started reading Dilbert around that same period, uh, 
at about eight years old, and I don't even remember what it was that I thought was funny about it. The same way that I also read Doonesbury, and I could not tell you what... Uh, I wasn't even reading new Doonesbury, I was reading anthologies from the 80s that my parents had, so I don't know what I, as a seven or eight-year-old in 1998, was getting out of reading jokes about Ronald Reagan. Uh, here's Likewise. what here's my theory. Here's my theory about uh, Doonesbury and Dilbert is that um, for whatever skill or lack of skill, I mean Gary Trudeau is a much better draftsman than oh, by, uh, by Scott far. Adams. But what Scott Adams uh, had a grasp of uh, was creating very marketable uh, looking characters. You know, mm-hmm. if, one of Dilbert's strengths is that they're all very recognizable silhouettes of his characters. Like he has mm-hmm. that grasp of character design where it's like. And you can draw a Dilbert character, too. It's easy to draw a Dilbert. So they're sort of fun replicating it. And they're it's very so marketable, easy. toyetic designs in, in yeah. a strange way, which I think that was the strength of the Dilbert comic more than anything else. Is, and usually why comic strips gain traction is because of the simply because of the design of their character. Like Garfield became a much more yeah. commercially designed character as the strip do, went on. Do you know what um, the Garfield guy, Jim Davis, was doing before Garfield? Uh, yeah, he Initially, had like Norm Nat. about bugs. Yeah. yeah. And he did that for a while, and it didn't pick up. And either he or some some editor of his told him, "Nobody likes bugs. Why are you making a comic strip about bugs?" Mm-hmm. And he sat down and thought, "What do people like? Cat. I draw a cat." And it's been nearly fifty years of, of uh, history. <laughs> billions of dollars later what what his observation was too is like ah, there's a lot of popular cartoon dogs you know snoopy and the like what if i made a cat you know there weren't a lot of cat cartoons at that time um i don't yeah. know if he i think heathcliff actually predates garfield oh yeah they were like within a year of each other yeah heathcliff was around first but um heathcliff also just exists in its own strange pocket world where yeah they're you know wild wild Heathcliff partisans who are are passionate about it, and also the the great uh, subculture online of people doing Heathcliff edits. Mm, yeah, I mean Heathcliff yeah. is great because it's like uh, it's just totally devolved into utter surrealism. Yeah, I, I, that's why I think I really like. I don't know if you've seen like uh, Heathcliff with helmets or plus yeah. helmets. Yeah, I. I, I the real delight for for me with those is that I had not read Heathcliff in years. And I think since I was a child, and you know, you think these are sort of strange, and then you find out that stuff that's in Heathcliff, like the 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 ape that runs around with a trash can, the garbage ape, yes, yeah, the garbage ape. That's just real. That's I I thought that that was some that seems like a Gen Z kid joke that they would make a, a ape that runs around with a trash can. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's just that's just Heathcliff as is. Yeah, you don't even need to make the edits. You, uh, it was already bizarre and and, uh, and ideas that don't really connect to one another and like it's, stuff just happens and the, like there's no explanation or fanfare or build up. Mm-hmm. things just happen the way they do in the world. You know, so in a way, Heathcliff yeah. has a strange verisimilitude. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> Heathcliff posits that the world is chaos, mm-hmm. and you just have to to live with it, the constant uncertainty that you could die at any moment, that a giant ape could run at you with a trash can at any moment. You mm-hmm. have to live in the world as is. Um, One I, must imagine Heathcliff happy. 
the thing, okay, so Scott Adams too is that uh, back to Dilbert. I, the, it's yeah. interesting that it appeals to children, or that for some reason I, I see a lot of a, a lot of my peers too would read Dilbert comics that was funny to them. Yeah, uh, I, I I think I just liked Talking Dog. I liked that there were um, problematic Eastern European people who lived in mud. The Elbonians, yes. The, the Elbonians. Yeah. Uh, I mostly just... My, my stepdad worked an office job, so I thought, like, if I read this comic, I will understand office. I will be like my stepdad. I will be adult. Mm-hmm. Because I read Dilbert. I understand Dilbert. He have job. Job funny. Actually, you know what else got me into Dilbert? The surprisingly good Dilbert animated series. Yeah, that that that's... There, I was already reading the strip when when the show came out, and I remember being excited about the show. And the show the show is baffling. Yeah, like, it was it, made by Larry Charles of Seinfeld fame, and it's much more his baby than Scott. Yeah. It's much more his sense of humor, which is much sort of darker and more nihilistic and more like openly critical of uh, uh, systems than yeah. uh, uh, Scott I, I, Adams's sense of humor. It's making me realize right now, like I think what i thought dilbert was and what a lot of people thought dilbert was in the 90s because it came around around like the same time like it it preceded it but it was around the same period as like stuff like office space Mm -hmm. which is you know the the quintessential like working in an office sucks movie yeah um and i think that's what people thought dilbert was and the longer it kept going and the more scott adams started writing business books the more it became clear that um no actually thinks that like working in an office is good he just thinks that anybody who is has any kind of like job superiority to him is a moron yes and he should be in charge Um, i think dilbert the cartoon is what people thought dilbert was mm mm-hmm like it was an actual criticism of yeah. the the backwards corporate world versus uh, what it eventually what what Dilbert inevitably is it's a support for the corporate world. In yeah. his book, Seven Years of Highly Defective People, which is a compilation of Dilbert strips, uh, he gives little notes, little annotations to some of the strips, and one always stuck in my mind as like a nine year old guy where he says, uh, "I love capitalism, even though it creates more losers than it does winners," which is uh, a thing that he says directly. And this was this was in 1997 before he sort of went really off the rails. There is a theory yeah. about Scott Adams. He had oh. this he had this condition called vocal dystonia, I think it's yeah. called, and he got a surgery for it. And people around him say that his personality changed drastically oh. after the surgery. I don't know if this is true. These are just allegations. But yeah. there is a definite divide between 90s Scott Adams, who's sort of cute and innocuous and funny and into nerd stuff and, you know, talks about stuff like the Peter Principle, and, like, 2000 Scott Adams, who becomes much more openly megalomaniacal. Um, you know, he has his house that's shaped like Dilbert. And, you yeah. know, um, what, and what's funny about Scott Adams is he is, a, like, a profoundly mediocre artist and, like, a profoundly mm. mediocre man that has been rewarded by capitalism because of his mediocrity, you know, mm. his, because his thing is not specific and because it doesn't really criticize the status quo in any significant way, it becomes accepted on uh, mass, And he spent years, you know, trying to, like, he knows, he secretly knows how mediocre he is. And he's trying to explain his success because capitalism cannot be flawed. Capitalism rewarded me. It must be a meritocracy, so I must be talented. 
And so then he comes up with stuff like in in Win Bigly, his Donald Trump book, you know, his his yeah, talent stack one. theory. You it's, know about his is, talent his ta- stack no, theory? I've I've only read um, his first two business books, which I read in the nineties. Uh, the Dilbert Principle I, and the Joy the of Work. Dilbert Principle and the Joy of Work, yeah. which I got as audiobooks from my school, from my library in the, the small town they lived in. Not my school library. They didn't have them in the school library. Also, it's homeschooled, so that, that that's irrelevant. But uh, yeah, no, my 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 uh, Scott Adams book knowledge extends to those two, which is mostly pertinent. The one thing that I took from it more than anything else is that I read the words masturbating like a wild chimpanzee and then said that phrase in front of my grandfather as an eight-year-old and then my mom took me into a shed and told me to never say that again you were reprimanded for dilbert yeah uh but t- tell me about what was it the something stack Oh, the talent stack. So what he his theory is that, well, I'm successful despite being a cartoonist. I'm not a great artist. I'm not mm. a great joke teller. Like, I'm average at these things. But when you combine these things in your talent stack, they combine to make something unique and talented. So it was just, like, another way to, like, try and explain why he was successful despite being mediocre. Like, mm. uh, which, and the answer is obvious, which is that capitalism often rewards mediocre things because they are consumable, they're more easily consumable by a mass audience than more specific or artistic or uh, emotional or raw or intense things, you know. Wait, does he, does he acknowledge that, that he's being rewarded for his mediocrity, or does he think that... No, he uh, thinks that all of his mediocre attributes uh, just taken together into... make him an awesome guy. You know, that's why he is meritocratic, because he had this collection of mediocre traits, which combined, combined like Voltron to make him the smartest man on Earth. I I think it is uh, kind of canny that, like, what you said before, the one thing that he has going for him is that he has recognizable characters that people like. Like, people love Dogbert. Uh, Oh, yeah. Fun fun fact for the people at home. You can look this up. Uh, Just Google Finrez Dark Throne Dogbert. Uh, Finrez, the um, one of the two members of the influential uh, Scandinavian black metal band, the guy who wrote Transylvanian Hunger, uh, has a tattoo of Dogbert on his arm, inexplicably or inexplicably, and. I, I watched an interview with him where he talked about it, and all he had to say, or no, it was, it was a, a magazine interview. All he had to say about it was just, I saw this little guy in the newspaper, and I liked him. We're talking yeah. about one of the most evil, well, he's not really evil. But one, well, one no, Dogbert is evil. Dogbert no, is I some... mean, Finrez. Finrez is like one of the least problematic, or only non-problematic people in that phase of black metal music. Yeah. But a guy, a guy who's a pioneer of this crushing kind of music that is is impenetrable and evil and spooky and he's got a tattoo on his forearm of a little dog with glasses little dogbert well dogbert's a great and what's funny about dogbert too is he's scott adams self-insert character scott adams sees himself as dogbert he's even egg-shaped like scott adams is egg-shaped um and dogbert you know we should have seen his megalomaniacal scott adams's megalomaniacal qualities a bit earlier because yeah. his self-insert character is a megalomaniacal little dog who is constantly correcting people and is smarter than everybody else yeah i think that i think that's also part of why i think i, I i'm starting to believe that scott adams or i do sort of believe that scott adams was always like this 
it's that people thought that he identified with Dilbert as being like a put upon mid-level guy who's kind of aimless uh, and it has to contend with like a, a psychopath dog a, a incompetent boss mm-hmm. and that he was you know because he's the everyman character yeah, I think people thought that everyman, yeah. but no clearly Scott Adams thinks of himself as being Dogbert yeah <laughs> And yeah, Scott did. Adams isn't Dilbert in the street. He wasn't even an engineer. People think that he was an engineer, but he never was he an engineer. Yeah, he worked at like as in like customer service positions in Pacific Bell. Oh god, and other stuff like that. He wasn't uh, yeah. in any sort of technical job. Um, so you know, flash forward. That, 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 is, that is fucking me up because <laughs> my, my my stepdad was a computer engineer and he read Dilbert and I think that that was it because like he thought like. This is a comic strip about me. I'm I'm the guy who goes to the office to touch a computer in the '90s when that made you a wizard. No, he isn't even. He's an aspiring engineer because what Scott Adams seems to prize more than anything else is like uh, the idea of rational or objective knowledge. Like mm. uh, in terms of philosophy, like he is a a, a textbook example of the overapplication of scientism. Mm-hmm. Uh, scientism, of course, being the epistemological theory that science and you know math and other forms of uh, quote unquote objective knowledge are uh, the best ways of knowing and the only ways of knowing and should be to the exclusion of all other ways of knowing, i.e., social sciences or history yeah. or uh, emotional uh, reasoning or anything like that. You know, um, and while you know science is good at explaining a great many things, it. it can't explain policy you know it can't it can't help us guide policy i mean sometimes it can but, yeah uh, it, it, it is not the answer to everything you know fu- have you seen full metal alchemist scott i think you should watch full metal alchemist because <laughs> it really deals with a lot of this stuff um so um this sort of idea that there is better and more objective knowledge keeps getting reproduced in his brain over the course of time he becomes sort of a a men's rights activist uh, as well, like women kicked him, out. and it, the same reason that there's uh, an anti-feminist qualities among these scientism guys is because of the idea that women are—they're naturally more emotional and irrational, so they're always bringing you down with their goddamn emotions, you know. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the the seed of a lot of his antipathy towards women. Also, he keeps getting like divorced. He doesn't seem to know how to love in any significant way. Uh, so that might be also uh, causing it. But um, he made big ways when he predicted that Trump would win the election. He called himself a persuasion expert and a hypnosis expert. You know, these are things that he uh, potentially has expertise in or at least credits himself with having expertise in. He claimed that he he cured his um, inability to speak by hypnotizing himself. Yeah, but that's not even true. He got surgery. He got like a lobotomy (laughs) for it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 um, didn't know that a lot of this was happening. Like, I, I remember reading Dilbert as a kid and then around Trump, around the election of Trump, suddenly hearing, like, Scott Adams said this thing and, I, and that being like this shocking thing to me that, um, you know, the Dilbert guy would say something like that, and then only then finding out that this was, like, after more than a decade of him doing stuff, including, like, saying that, or, like, making blog posts where he'd say stuff that, you have, like, you have to treat women like children or mentally disabled people. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, yeah, this steady, this steady, steadily becoming more and more right wing over the course of 2000s until he just goes full mask off. But he doesn't even go mask off. He still insists that he's a centrist or liberal, even though yeah. obviously not. But well, you know that half the, of them do. Yeah, that's, that's a that's a common ploy with with people because it's you know uh, one maybe they genuinely believe that, but two uh, they're intentionally or unintentionally moving or trying to move the window of what is acceptable centrism. <laughs> so so gradually he just becomes more and more extremely right wing and it's finally come to a head uh just last week i think on monday of last week he was doing his usual have coffee with scott adams sit down monday morning podcast or whatever and then in response to a rasmussen poll uh where it said that 50 percent of black people don't agree with the statement it's okay to be white yeah. Which, of course, you know, the statement, it's okay to be white, is like, all lives matter. It's a bullshit, nonsense statement yeah. that's designed to take away from the actual societal issue that is at play. Yeah, so, I mean, it, of, yeah. it's okay to be white specifically, like, yeah. was a phrase that was engineered by people on 4chan uh, with the intention. Like, I, I, I've met some sincere, like, all lives matter people who, who, like, think that they're saying something, like, genuinely accepting and good. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a stupid phrase, but, you know, they, they think that. Uh, the phrase it's okay to be white like explicitly was started as like a, a racist psyop because yeah. it was supposed to be it's supposed to fundamentally be insinuating that like some people say it's not okay to be white yeah the leftists think it's not okay to be white yeah um and so yeah it's obviously to anyone who like thinks about any sort of deeper context of the phrase it's a bullshit phrase and still 50 percent of of african americans yeah more agree with it because you know on its face oh it's okay to be white. yeah sure that's fine yeah. whatever yeah it's 53 percent, and he decided that like the fact that close to half of them said no that phrase sucks means that half of them are themselves racist yes he said that black people are and he said that black people in america are tantamount to a hate group and yeah. you should separate yourselves white people should separate themselves he was literally advocating for segregation yeah <laughs> which is and he said i moved to a neighborhood where i wouldn't have to deal with so many of them and it's like uh, he's trying to like pedal back on all of these overtly racist and like unambiguously racist sentiments and it's crazy to see him still push the line of like this was misinterpreted. This direct quote in context was misinterpreted. <laughs> um, so he's he's been doing that because uh, these statements were unpopular enough to get Dilbert shitcan from a lot of its uh, a lot a lot of the newspapers that it was still published in. It's also crazy to think that there are newspapers that still publish strips and that pay yeah. syndicates for their strips. That that's still an economy, an economy that's dominated by a bunch of like old geezers. But it's still there to some some degree. I wonder, like, how many people are picking up, like, the Palookaville Post just to read, I don't know, reruns of For Better or For Worse. I, I wonder yeah. if that, like, how much money is being made off of these comic syndicates still going or, like, what? Yeah, I, I don't know who still reads newspapers other than my grandmother. I guess She's that's who it's for, alive. right? Yeah. Um... Yeah, but no, no, no. Actually, she doesn't even read normal newspapers. She just reads the Weekly World News and, <laughs> and will tell you about an exciting story she read in it at face value. Which also, speaking of, of which, like, if we're going to uh, give 
credit to Scott Adams for uh, saying that Trump would win. You also have to give the same credit to my grandmother, who also, I, the last time I, I think I, I saw her in person because she lives on the other side of the country, just like looked at me out of nowhere and said, I don't think America is going to elect Hillary Clinton. People hate her. Yeah, she was right. Yeah. I mean, if you were so looking like, for any yeah. one reason why Trump got elected, it's because they were fielding a historically unpopular and unfit candidate on the other side. Yeah. So, I mean, also, I think you could also just as easily make a claim there that uh, maybe my grandmother should write Dilbert. Yeah, she's, she would... at least has the same amount of uh, political knowledge that Scott Adams has, at least the same instinct that he has. Yeah, I think maybe it's because of reading uh, tabloids that yeah, that puts you more in touch with the id of America yeah. and gives you the, the power to innately understand this stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I think pe most people who actually read newspapers at this point are just doing it as a, as a force of habit. Mm-hmm rather than and so to that end it's mostly like people who like live in big city like i couldn't even my city has a newspaper and i couldn't even tell you where you would pick up a copy of it if you don't have a subscription like the only newspapers that i think are like still have a readership are the ones where the readers understand how important it is to give money to it like the wall street journal or financial times they understand that it, this resource is necessary for the functioning of our business economy so we have to keep paying for it but other than mm -hmm. that you know i like who's paying for entertainment? You don't need to pay for entertainment anymore. You need to, you can you yeah. can get thousands of hours for free. Um, so th this has all led me to, you know, oh, I'm fascinated with Scott Adams. He's such an interesting figure. And for those of us who are trying to make it as cartoonists, you see someone who is like as profoundly mediocre as this guy, make millions of dollars in an economy that doesn't exist anymore, and you're sort of filled with a strange mix of jealousy and anger and desire for revenge at least i am <laughs> you know yeah uh yeah that i i more than i mostly just like i got i guess i i i don't have feel jealous towards him because i i don't really want to be in a newspaper yeah i guess on paper there's something about there's something where you could say that i i I guess I envy the, the level of success that he has at all for how shitty he is, but more than anything, I just think he has a very punchable face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's just a yeah, gross nerd that you want to stuff into a locker. He, he single-handedly makes a good case for bringing back bullying nerds. Yeah, yeah. We should give him an atomic oh wedgie. A guy that deserves I'm... an atomic wedgie more than anything else. Um, I, I but fucking maybe... hate his little wide glasses. <laughs> you should have seen the signs... Of Scott Adams' uh, racism earlier, because uh, in 2002 and 2004, in keeping with his uh, uh, extended megalomaniacal uh, upswing, he writes two books. One is called God's Debris, and this is the book that he thinks he will be known for. This is his legacy. This is his big thing. Uh, and God's Debris is about, uh, it's a thought experiment where God collides with himself or something and then creates a pattern outwards. It's very sort of dry and philosophical and like college, you know, college. What if we're all seeing different colors, man? Um, yeah. So I didn't want to read that not, one. Not to be confused with God's Debris, the book about how God... Uh, restored his foreskin over the right, course yeah. of about a year with increasingly heavy weights and a small uh, nerf uh <laughs> bullet that was placed directly on the glands 
to give something to press against right yeah you the need process that of, of in order to, re- restoration. to restore uh, the that, foreskin, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> i'm now i'm just picturing like foreskin restoration on tlc and oh, they're like man. doing like uh trading spaces but for foreskins uh. did god himself <laughs> have a foreskin so large that he himself could not cut it Oh um, man, uh, I just remembered when when the the force as somebody who's been online forever, and like just found that that one guy's website by accident as an eleven year old when the foreskin restoration guy was on How to with John Wilson, like I stood up and clapped. Yeah, yeah, because it was, it was just like yeah, there's that guy, there's that guy that fucked me up when I was twelve because <laughs> I saw his weird dick. Uh, yeah. You made it. When you, when you first discover an incredibly specific person and it later gets referenced in mass culture is always yeah. a very, uh, jarring thing. Because it was, I was there before! I was there before you guys knew anything about him. What um, that guy draw Dilbert? Yeah, the, I'm sure it'll be a lot more foreskin-oriented. Yeah, I think intactivist Dilbert, um, is the way forward. <laughs> intactivist. I didn't know that was the word. That's oh, really yeah. funny. Oh, yeah. Um... <laughs> So, the follow-up book to God's Debris, um, I read the synopsis to it, and it seemed like the most insane thing that had ever been written, or just one of the worst things that had ever been written. It's right at the beginning of the new atheist movement, right at the beginning Mm -hmm. of Dawkins and Hitchens and all those guys. Um, And it's very of its era. It was written in 2004, and the book is called The Religion War. And it stars the character from God's Debris, the Avatar, who is the smartest man in the world and knows everything. It's like a you know? mailman or something? Yeah, so, I, yeah. That's been a recurrent work in Scott Adams of very smart people in mundane positions of the world's smartest garbage man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, his, his view of what makes someone intelligent, too, is that very scientific view where somebody has some sort of mathematical or, or science ability that separates them um yeah it's it's still fucking me up to to find out that he wasn't an engineer because of the fact that like so his entire thing has this whole time has just been stealing valor about um being perceived of as being one of the engineer class who understands everything yeah he's stealing this, nerd valor yeah yeah this is this is informing a lot of my understanding of, of scott adams in a way that i i, I didn't have before Oh well, yeah, I, I'm a bit of a Scott Adams historian, a bit of a, a bit of a Scott scholar, uh, and um, man, I w- I've been reading some of the re- religion war. It is not an yeah. exaggeration to say that this is his Turner Diaries. Jesus this is Christ. this is his. Uh, so I'm gonna start it. We're gonna do some readings from the religion war. Rory has not read this before. You you haven't yeah. read any portion of this book before, have you? No, I I, I read a little bit of God's Debris. Um, I mostly what I, I picked up from it is I, I find charming that in the introduction he says that that kids who like his work shouldn't read it that uh, oh because this is might not be appropriate for anybody under 14 implying that he is aware of he his large uh, reader base who are literal children who don't understand what his comic is about mm-hmm. um oh yeah, the story contains no vi- violence, no sexual content, no no offensive language, but the ideas expressed by the characters are inappropriate for young minds. <laughs> People under the age of 14 should not read it. He has such a high opinion of himself. He's like Peggy Hill. Oh my god. <laughs> Speaking like... also of uh, people who've had who have radical uh, mental shifts after surgery. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh my god yeah, you're right after peggy does fall out of the plane her character becomes yeah, much that's more the, uh, that is an entire conspiracy or, a, or like fan theory about about Dilbert or about king of the hill that something happened to peggy during that surgery that caused her to become more self-centered and, yeah more like, jerk ass jerk ass peggy yeah i don't know if it's true but having rewatched king of the hill kind of recently it does uh feel compelling um so we're gonna get yeah. into the religion war uh i'm gonna start at the beginning a very good place to start uh with the prologue so paint me a picture with scott adams words here's the the religion war in the year 2007 a brilliant and charismatic leader named al z began his rise to power in the palestinian territories he was the architect of the 20-year plan for eliminating Israel, oh, oh. <laughs> the, sex, the success of which started a domino effect in the Middle East as one Arab dictatorship after another fell and their territories rolled into the great caliphate. Al-Z's subjects, heady from an unbroken string of victories, demanded the spread of Islam to the rest of the world. Al-Z understood that this was neither practical nor desirable, but to satisfy the appetite of his people. Oh my god. <laughs> he began an unending war of minor terror against the Christian-dominated world. Uh, the attacks were calculated to be large enough to look like progress, yet small enough to avoid provoking all-out war. Publicly, he what? blamed renegade... <laughs> no fucking sense. What is he basing this on? 9-11? That did provoke an all-out war. Yeah, that... Uh, provoked a huge war that is... Kind of still going? Yeah. Maybe? But yeah, he, it's also funny because, like, this, this picture is a Christian-dominated world. Yeah. And um, at the time of 2004, evangelical Christendom was a big political motivator. Like, George W. Bush invaded Iraq because of, he thought Gog and Magog were there, right? Yeah. Um, but what's, what's funny is that over time, uh, you know, that has only be, that's like 35% of the base of the GOP now. The evangelical uh, Christian yeah. uh, uh, political vote has waned significantly. And in its place was sort of like entertainment Republicans like Trump and Adams himself. He is what replaced that sort of Christian totalitarian thing, which is very funny. I, I'm just hung up on uh, the, the attacks being small enough that they don't, like, get people to fight back. What, like, what is this guy doing? Like, going into people's houses and just very quietly sawing the beams out? Until, like, one house at a time, the houses collapse. Yeah, all the terrorists are painting fake tunnels on the walls. <laughs> of <Jackson. laughs> well, um, he acknowledged the existence of Palestine at all. Yeah, he... he it, what's, it's so funny. He thinks that a big leader's gonna come out of Palestine to destroy... And it's just such a misreading of the actual power of the Islamic world facing yeah. Israel. Like, does he not know about the... Does he not know about the Six-Day War? Does he not? <laughs> I don't think he's done a huge amount of reading on Israel-Palestine. Um, yeah. But he acknowledged it exists. Yeah. What's, uh, but what's also funny is he starts the book off with the destruction of millions of Jews, <laughs> which is why I compare it to the Turner Diaries, because but, either way in the future, a lot of Jews are going to die. You know, but it's in just a way good, where what's nothing happen. bad happens to the guy yes. who does it. Um, yeah, no, uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, well, now we're getting into it because, of course, Horatio Cruz, the leader of the Christian world, is getting it, but, oh, uh, le let's read some more of the prologue, um, yeah. because the, <sighs> this next paragraph is a doozy. 
Terror weapons improved dramatically during Alzi's rule. Anyone with a few hundred dollars could buy a satellite-guided model airplane capable of flying a hundred miles to deliver explosives to a precise target. Terrorists no longer needed to commit suicide, so the pool of volunteers was unlimited. What? <laughs> Alzi was careful to avoid killing anyone important or destroying anything irreplaceable. It was a difficult balancing act trying to wage small-scale war without provoking total war. The strategy worked, until 2040, when General Horatio Cruz came to power in the Christian Alliance. Yeah, so the image of, like, a series of escalating attacks by the Islamic world didn't really happen. No. Yeah. You know. No. I'm, I mean, this was, like, I guess a few years before ISIS popped off, but, like, that didn't really do much if you think about it in the grand scheme of things no they got their ass handed to them because they pissed everyone off i mean uh, they, they in terms talk about provoking total war you know isis were, were not as savvy as al z i'll tell you that much. had al z yeah. been running isis you know they would have got a lot more stuff um, done I'm, I'm still just stuck on this guy's conception of there being like a group like isis except everybody just says oh okay yeah. Well, I guess they're they're doing that. They uh they dropped an anvil on uh, <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu. He died. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh yeah, as if, you know, um stuff like uh, the the Fort Hood shooting wasn't used as a way to extend the war on terror and the bloody occupation of uh, Yeah. Uh, was it Fort Hood? Was that the one where it was the the Muslims? I don't even remember. Yeah. Okay. I think so. But yeah, it, the idea that even a small act of terror will not be met with an insane, re, an insane overreactive response by uh, the American hege hegemony is a, like a very deliberate misreading of what was happening. Yeah, I mean, like, fu fundamentally, like uh, everything in American culture is to some degree or another now some sort of weird response to some usually thwarted terrorist attack attempt. Uh, it, it, like it, just the, the fact, like. By itself, the, the way that American airports work now is because a guy made a bomb that he put in a shoe that did not go off. And, and now it's, that's uh, his far-reaching effects. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he really thinks about it. He's not a great world builder, Scott Adams. That was his prologue, and it was like three paragraphs, and that's a lot of information that is not fleshed out at all. So <laughs> um, now we're into the story. Now the first chapter, Old Man. Sir... There's an old man in the lobby. He wants to talk to General Cruz, a reddish rhino of a man, stopped his lanky aide in mid-sentence. Cruz didn't like interruptions. He didn't like a lot of things. Committees, fools, ambiguity, or unknowns. Cruz's faith in God and his battlefield victories imbued him with a sense of self-confidence and clarity that made him a natural leader. He knew that God was on his side, that his career was divinely inspired. He believed that when an idea came to him without a trail, it was God's way of talking. These qualities, plus his tactical genius, propelled Cruz to Secretary of War, a position that had evolved to include de facto control over all the armies of NATO. <laughs> Secretary of War of what? Of America? Of the Christian of Alliance? He hasn't introduced the Christian Alliance. The concept of war of uh, all... all Athena came down from Mount Olympus. And, no, wait, Athena wasn't the god. Who was the god of war? Ares. Air, Air, whichever one, the god came down from Olympus and gave him a big spear and said, you are the war master now. You are the god of war. You are Kratos. 
um, and you have one job, two two jobs. One, negotiate all wars. Two, uh, whip your big chain swords at Muslims. I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's it. He is Kratos. Is he is the legendary god of war. He's the secretary of war of some ambiguous organization, but has controls of all the NATO armies. Um, oh, Rory, this next <laughs> sentence. This next sentence. Oh boy. Cruz used his eyes the same way he used everything else, like weapons. <laughs> He's such a great writer. I don't think this was edited. I don't think he had an editor. Also, earlier in the in the phrase, he says, "General Cruz, a reddish rhino of a man." Keep, keep that that format in mind because he goes back to that that sentence a lot. A reddish rhino, not uh, of a man specific. I'll, I'll get yeah, into I it mean, later. That. that... Um, I will say that that puts him a step above, uh, famously in Ben Shapiro's, uh, uh, thriller novel, True Allegiance. He refers repeatedly to the main character as being a bear of a man. A big bear of a man, yeah. A big but bear of a man. Of the of the blank of a man thing is that yeah. I, I want to see if I can find it because, like, three paragraphs later, he says, he, he uses the same, uh, descriptor for another character. Uh, specifically being a, a red rhino no he calls himself like a lanky a lanky baboon of a man but he keeps okay. saying it well, of a man as well yeah just different different animals yeah uh yeah that's how that's how you compare it I, I was just gonna i just meant that that is still a step above ben shapiro because he also used an adjective aside from the animal shape you have a, a much more complicated picture of a, a what if there was a red rhinoceros okay i found it i found it just so like a page later like one page later he says the admirals and generals were a concert of leather and pressed cotton their metal their medals and shoes played percussion as they took their positions around the black oval map table admiral helms a tall drawn skeleton of a man <laughs> had an uncharacteristically troubled expression i think an editor would have caught that <laughs> i think he maybe needed to send this to an editor uh, but a concert yeah, of leather, a concert of leather and pressed cotton. Yes, yeah, isn't bad description. Yes, yeah, it just sounds like something else. Yeah, uh, a concert of leather hot, and pressed cotton. Hot goth cotton, night. Yeah. Sounds like cruising. Yeah, uh, everyone's <laughs> going cruising at the Pentagon. Horatio cruising. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna skip around without context because it's yeah, even yeah, funnier without it. context. Uh, Helms tried. Uh, so so now an old man has come to Horatio Cruz, and I think this is the Avatar character who is the smartest man in the world and who recognizes patterns. He's the character from Gods to Breed. Cool. Helms tried. I thought he was a street person when I first saw him outside the building. He doesn't have a jacket, just a red plaid blanket that looks pretty beat up. But there's something about him. I said hi, and the next thing I knew, he was describing our entire battle plan as if he'd been in every meeting with us. So what? Cruz yelled. The media have been spraying it all over the news for the past six months. Every moron knows our plans. No, I mean he knows the specifics. You know, he described our exact troop deployment plans, our attack sequence, exactly what we're planning to stage our battle platforms. Um, <laughs> the battle platforms are gigantic aircraft carrier-like, but but, but they're, they're oh, like a hundred times the size of an aircraft carrier, and they have uh, missiles on them. That's Does he get into mech shit in this? Does, eh, not in any interesting like... way. Oh man, I was really hoping this was going to turn into some robot jock stuff. Uh, 
we're, we're I, I want to skip forward to um, another passage that I, I read, uh, mm-hmm. one called the the GIC, because uh, these are a lot of his predictions about the like the media of the future. And uh, this is this is his like uh, brave new world, but it's the religion war brave new world. Okay, here we go. The chapter Global Information Corporation. I think this okay. is the the fourth or fifth chapter. Uh, the Avatar walked a half mile to the nearest hydrocab taxi sensor and stood on it. For the past five years, taxis had been the only form of four wheel street travel. All Fords, all hydrogen engines. When all these forces started bombing the United States and Europe on a weekly basis, it became unthinkably unpatriotic to drive a gas-guzzling car. <laughs> Soon it became unpatriotic to own any car. <laughs> cool. The Green Party had become a major social force. Oh, Arguing oh, no. successfully that every time you filled the tank of your SUV, you paid Alzi to bomb your neighbor. <laughs> The last holdouts, not wrong. (laughs) Mostly the rich and the cynical, were converted when American ultranationalists took matters into their own hands and started dynamiting domestic automobile factories. That's so cool. (laughs) Of the American car makers, only Ford survived. (laughs) Every sentence is great. Every sentence is a new gem. Barely thanks to the government loans and a promise to make nothing but hydrogen taxis. He gets the technology wrong, but he gets the bailing out of the auto industry correct, which is funny. Yeah. Uh, is this still in the period where there's not really much military retaliation? I I think Al- so. LZ is just, every, every week, LZ drops a bomb on one guy's car. He's, he's floating around in his uh, terror zeppelin dropping uh circular bombs on people yeah and their response is well we have to destroy every car (laughs) as opposed to the the entirety of the uh the build-up to in the early days of the war in iraq where uh you know there were people in the streets chanting no blood for oil and bringing up the uh the amount of money that the saudi government gets from oil and the general american response was Fuck you, I'm going to buy a Hummer. Yeah, I mean, it was buying a Hummer, too, but also the idea, like, on the right-wing side, yeah, we're invading them so that we can get their oil and make it cheaper. It just doesn't make any sense. That I mean, this is, like, a guy who has, like, lived in California for too long and thought, Mm. like, the the hegemony of the environment, enviro-fascists was encroaching in the near future, and, you know, that... Well, I mean, I I guess that would make sense... The, you know, we'd invade them and take the royal if, you know, America was fighting back in this case instead of um, every day one American uh, meets Al Z, but he's wearing a, a big pair of novelty glasses with a fake nose and a mustache and he gives them a flower, but it turns out that the flower is dynamite and the dynamite <laughs> blows up in their face and they have ash all yeah. over their face. Yeah. A bunch of American soldiers were running off a cliff, and they didn't realize <laughs> that they were running off a cliff until they looked down. <laughs> um, the taxi sensor below the Avatar's feet sensed his weight, registered two points of pressure, and relayed the information. One passenger to the global taxi satellite system, which broadcast it back to Earth along with geographic coordinates. Actually, this isn't a bad prediction of Uber. He sort of yeah. predicted Uber in a lot of ways. 
uh, with this. Three taxis were available in nearby. I'm, I'm skipping around. He, he accurately predicted that no matter what, people would just not accept public transportation as being a viable way to get around. <laughs> yeah, that that was smart of him. That was a smart idea. I, I agree with him on that. Um, three taxis were available in nearby. They snapped their engines into drive at the first indication on their navigation screens that a potential passenger waited nearby. Hydrocab profit margins were artificially lo- were kept artificially low by the government, <laughs> so only the most aggressive operators <laughs> survived. Okay. The first hydrocab screeched around the corner and came to a... An- also, the hydrogen energy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why would they have hydrogen cars? What is this? <laughs> the first... <laughs> Oh, Jesus my God. Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, here we go. The first hydrocab screeched around the corner and came to a noisy stop in front of the Avatar, just as the second and third appeared a block away. The Avatar leaned down and examined the driver, an unpleasant-looking fellow named Arun Singh, oh. <laughs> according to his operating license. Okay. Okay, Scott. According to his operating license, which was prominently displayed, the Avatar smiled and motioned to the driver to continue on without him. Singh snarled, but didn't wait around to argue, burning his tires in disgust. He had become accustomed to older customers waving him on because they mistook him for a Muslim. He hated this country lately, but it, it was not his day to change it. Uh, see, this is a great world building here. He, he recognized that Indians would be mistaken for Muslims. So, uh, Another thing that was... Uh, I don't think he gets points for that one and that that was already happening. This, this is great. He's cycling through races here. All of the drivers are non-white drivers. The second hydrocab saw the opportunity and pulled up. The avatar smiled to the driver, a woman in her 50s named Noriko Yamamoto. She oh. returned a dead stare, expecting him to get in. The avatar waved her off. Her blank look became anger as the cab pulled away. The third cab approached, and the avatar looked inside. The driver's license said, Hector Rodriguez. <laughs> Here we go. Scott Adams' parade of the races. Uh, it's the parade of the cab drivers. <laughs> They're all the different races. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, Hector Rodriguez. The driver's license said Hector Rodriguez. Hector was a young man, early 30s, with dark, friendly eyes and a well-manicured mustache. <laughs> and he's wearing a poncho. He was wearing and he's a, got sombrero. a sombrero with uh, some tassels hanging off he of it. He kept saying, yippa, yippa, ondole, ondole. <laughs> Whenever he drives his car at all, it plays La Cucaracha on horns. He's always eating and beans. And... Also, his, his uh, taxi inexplicably uh, has rims and hydraulics. Uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's not that far off as oh it goes on. Uh, oh, he was smiling. The Avatar opened the back door and got in. Destination, mumbled the driver, presumably <laughs> in, like a, in an insensitive accent. Uh, do you in know the where, most where... Nick Mullen voice imaginable? Yes, the most Nick Mullen voice. Do you know where the GIC headquarters building is? Asked the Avatar, referring to Global Information Corporation, a household name by now. C. Just <laughs> <laughs> says C in quotes. Why would he say destination in an English in English? But he would answer C. Oh, I don't. Because oh, this is great world building, Rory. Yeah. Excellent world building here. He knows that Spanish. <laughs> Hispanic people Spanish, would say C. Spanish people could say yes in Spanish, which mm-hmm. also, if I want to get really, really pedantic about this, as somebody who grew up in a city that was primarily uh, Latin American, El Paso, a border town, right on the edge of Ciudad Juarez, uh, it's not uncommon for uh, 
<clears throat> Spanish-speaking Americans to drop words of Spanish into conversations, but it's usually not just saying yes. Yeah, it's they, usually not just saying yeah. see. But it's, Rory, usually they'll say like maybe it. something rude in Spanish that they think you don't understand. Um, if they're so mad the driver... at you, or, or they'll just like use an adjective that they don't have a word for. The only people I hear just saying "see" si normally are middle-aged white people who think it's funny to just say "see, si, senor." Yeah. Well, here, here we go, Rory. It continues. I, I might tell you to stop click quickly. Will you do that for me? Asked the avatar. "See," si, said the driver. <laughs> I don't mean when we get to GIC. I mean in the middle of the street, and you won't have much warning. I will compensate you well if you do as I ask. See, said the driver. He doesn't even call it. He's Hector. He doesn't even. He named the character. I don't know why he keeps calling him the driver. Um, this, the this, is, this is meant to show off. Uh, no, this is this is one of the I think great pieces of, of work that Scott Adams has done with this character because at first you get his name, you get his identity, you get to know who he is as a person, but the second that a passenger gets into into his car, he's suddenly dehumanized by the presence of the driver, or by the presence of the, the passenger. He mm -hmm. just becomes the, dri the driver, a faceless, uh, speedy Gonzalez ass. Uh, well, he is not faceless, uh, Rory, because oh, right, this driver, a giant uh, mustache. the very next chapter, Rory, can you guess what it's called? Uh... It's called Hector's Terrorist Cell. Oh, shit. I was, was going to guess uh, Hector's uh, big quinceanera party. Oh, my God. I <laughs> Rory, Rory, Rory. What, 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 what? I'm going to just start this chapter. Um, so Hector was waiting in his hydrocab. He'd endured a string of taunts from the other hydrocab drivers working in the area. Only suckers waited for a fare to do his business in return. First, it was dead time, and you never knew how long it would be. Sometimes, the customer never returned at all. Second, the streets were covered with all available hydrocabs, so waiting made no sense at all. To the other drivers, this was a sign of someone who was either new to the game or had no backbone. Either way, they found amusement in his idleness. The Avatar got in the cab and thanked Hector for waiting. Hector just sighed and nodded. Destination? He asked in a low mumble. Take me to your boss, the Avatar said. Hector's eyes drilled into the rearview mirror, trying to assess the meaning of this request. The Avatar expected no immediate verbal response. He was looking for confirmation of a pattern he'd seen developing when he first hailed the hydrocab. I don't mean your taxi boss, said the Avatar. You can stop pretending to be Hector the Mexican. Who oh my God, I called it. Oh my God. Oh my God. He's, he's you work for Al Z. I would like you to take me to him. Hector, actually Ali, reached oh under my God. the seat I was right. I was and right. took out a handgun, oh, making sure God. the avatar saw oh, it's, it's literally, he is, he is a brown, <laughs> therefore indistinguishable from any of the other browns who's got fucking... <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, straight oh, up, there this was is like... a reverse triple R. Instead of a guy posing as a Muslim in order to in order to infiltrate, now it's a guy. It's, it's a guy posing as a Mexican. Dude, straight oh up, my God. there was like a two-year period where I didn't have a, a state ID card because I'd, I'd been homeless and I couldn't like renew it because I didn't have an address. And when I went to the DMV to try to sort it out one time, they told me they need they needed a bunch of forms. And I asked what for, and their explanation was, uh, well, how do we know that you're not an Al-Qaeda member who got in from Mexico? 
Uh, here it is. <laughs> I mean, you you are not a particularly <laughs> Arab-looking person. No. Uh, but you know. But uh, that that. Holy shit! There it is. This is the thing. I did the person at the DMV who wouldn't give me a license read the religion war. Rory, I'm I'm continuing. Yeah. How do you know this old man? Ali asked, no longer hiding an Arabic accent. Oh, fucking hell. I assume that Al Z is monitoring the comings and goings at the major military sites looking for intelligence. The hydrocabs operate outside the security perimeter, and there are so many of them, they draw no attention. And most of the drivers are dark skinned men, so you wouldn't draw attention. <laughs> oh my god! You know what? We I think we should have seen the whole segregation thing coming. Yeah, it's it's Scott Adams' point with this that we have to also kick all the Mexicans out of America because they could secretly be Arabs. <laughs> He's doing. It, what's so funny is his his protagonist, the Avatar, is the smartest person in the world who recognizes pro who recognizes patterns and everything. And now his big pattern recognition thing is racial profiling. Yeah, he's he is like. Yeah, just uh, the the scene at the beginning of Terminator, where like you see Terminator's eyes scanning the scene, <laughs> but, but it's different. It's just races. It's different. <laughs> he's he's identifying yeah, what race they are. So box pops up that says Mexican, Arab, <laughs> Indian. Little color chart pops down. <laughs> I mean, how did you know that I was the one? Ali said, miffed that his cover was so easily penetrated. You fit the profile: male, mid thirties, dark skin. <laughs> And you were the only one who tried to look friendly. No hydrocab driver tries to be friendly, said the Avatar. <laughs> Ali smiled at his cab. Man, he, he really hates cab drivers, I guess. Yeah, like he had a lot I, of bad I, cab I drivers. I forgot also that the main character's name was the Avatar. I'm, re- I'm reading Snow Crash, and I thought maybe it was just like the beginning of Snow Crash when Hero is just being called the Deliverator. I thought maybe this was just like a stylistic choice. <laughs> Well, I should also tell you, in case you plan to stay on this assignment, that even a Mexican who has only been in the country for ten minutes knows how to say yes in English. The si senor business was over the top. I did not say senor, Ali protested. (laughs) Oh my god, this is amazing. (laughs) I can't believe you wrote this. I can't believe anyone sat down and wrote this and was like, this is a finished product, this is a good idea. Oh my this God. whole thing is is fundamentally about him being a California guy and being annoyed about taking cabs in California. <laughs> Don't you know how they're all dark skinned? Don't you notice how all your cab drivers are dark? <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, I, I'm just gonna like the I Ching. I think we can root around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can just going. root around randomly and select any random paragraph, and it will be a jewel of information. Yeah, yeah keep going. Uh, here we go. I've skipped forward a little. Uh, we're still in the chapter Hector's terrorist cell. He's not. I guess they couldn't reveal his name was Ali in the title. It's yeah, Ali's you know, terrorist cell. Yeah, that's how you know Scott Adams is a master. Inside the terminal, the Avatar studied the destination information for all the flights, looking for patterns. <laughs> He's always looking for patterns. It's about patterns. You know, it's all about pattern recognition. Yeah, that's I, how it is when you're an engineer like Scott Adams. 
But that's actually a very... Because his idea of intelligence, his idea of what makes the smartest person in the world is mm -hmm. limited to pattern recognition, which is a very interesting thing because that's also what IQ tests use to yeah. determine uh, uh, like some sort of objective intelligence. Even though IQ tests like were largely debunked as nonsense yeah. many times over, people like this still rely on them and still use them because they feel that pattern recognition by itself is the only thing that really determines intelligence. So Scott Adams has now created a guy who is the best at pattern recognition and thus the smartest person in the universe. Um, AKA Scott Adams. Yeah, yeah recognized he's the, the pattern guy. of less than half of all black people surveyed by a right-wing polling organization said that a phrase is not okay, therefore all black people are terrorists. This is the pattern, you know. He, he first recognized it because of all the male pattern baldness. Uh, ball joke. Take that. Take that, Scott Adams. Your ball. I don't have my cell phone on me to do the, the ham horn. <laughs> the Avatar's mind cycled through unrelated facts about each city, feeling for patterns, distances, number of terrorist attacks, counterterrorism arrests, friendly governments, arms on the ground. <laughs> the Avatar considered all of those patterns and more, scanning each city, pausing to meditate on what bubbled to the top. Cairo, Tehran, Riyadh, Kadum. <laughs> there it was, Kadum, a city that didn't show up on any map five years ago. Now it had an international airport. It was what? the center of commerce for the Arab. He invented an Arab city. That, that also just magicked its way into the world. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah. Al Z secretly just had guys sneaking off into the desert at night, uh, uh, putting it on one brick at a time until suddenly <laughs> there's a giant city. He predicted Neom. He actually oh, yeah. predicted Neom. So there you go. Maybe Scott Adams is good at pattern recognition. He he knew the Arab world's ability to to Make use a, a lot of. Ah, uh, fuck it. I I think this is something someone said on Trash Future. Making a city that's just a five over one. Yeah. <laughs> the entire five over one city. Um. There are other stuff in the future. There's um. Not in the future, I should say. There was one that there was there was a passage of this which I found earlier, which was about an argument between a, a Frenchman and the Avatar. I want to see if I can go back to find. It. I think it oh comes boy, before. what kind of race science can we do about the French now? <laughs> uh, well, what was especially bizarre about it is the Frenchman was supporting the Muslims. The Frenchman was saying stuff in support of the Muslims, which I don't know if Scott Adams has ever met a French guy. But generally, they're not yeah. the, the biggest fans of Islam. No, they, they love Islam. That's why they keep trying to draw the Prophet Muhammad. Because they want, yeah. they want he's their favorite guy, and they want to put a picture of him on the fridge. Uh, uh. Avatar flies to Kadoom. No, here it is. Here it is. Avatar flies to Kadoom. It's on the... Kadoom. Flying. How is Kadum, yeah. How is that spelled? Q-A-D-U-M? Q-A-D-U-M. Kadoom. Kadoom. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be like Khartoum, but it's not Khartoum. It's a, oh, it's Kadoom. Or like Mount Doom. It has yeah. Doom in it, so yeah, you know it's bad. It, that, that's what I'm zeroing in on. That's my pattern recognition ability uh, sounding an alarm. This is a word, a word with the word Doom inside of it. Okay, this next paragraph rules. So, <laughs> the Avatar settled into his business class seat, collecting suspicious glances from the other travelers who noticed this, his ragged clothing. A 40-year-old banker arranged himself in the next seat, attending to his little pillow and his carry-on luggage. 
and handing his jacket to the flight attendant while ordering a Jack Daniels on the rocks. He was a big man, Boston-grown, Ivy League education. A glance at the avatar in his ragged clothes convinced the banker that it might be a long flight. A French auto executive, early 50s, dropped his briefcase and newspaper in the seat next to the banker, hunted for some overhead storage, and handed his jacket to a flight attendant. As the plane taxied down the runway, the avatar meditated while the banker and the auto executive sipped their drinks. The Frenchman harumphed at the front page of the paper, hoping to engage the banker and ultimately enrich the world with the magic and beauty of his opinions, but the banker wasn't having it. Stupid war, said the Frenchman, trying harder to engage the banker. No one wins, said the banker, trying to end the conversation with a comment that offered no traction. You know why we're heading to war, don't you? The Frenchman asked. The banker turned and looked at him, saying nothing, unsure about getting into the sort of discussion on such a long flight. The Jews control the media. That's why, said the Frenchman. Okay. <laughs> Ever since Israel got overrun, the Jews have been hammering at war, war, war. They control the news in America, and the news controls the politicians. The banker took a deep breath. That was too much fresh meat for a good northeastern liberal to ignore. <laughs> uh, that's ridiculous, he said with an undertone of disdain. No one controls the media. Really? When was the last time you saw Alzi's viewpoint in your media? Asked the, <laughs> the pro-Islam, the pro-Islam anti-Semitic Frenchman. <laughs> Uh, this was, this guys... was also right after the French uh, famously declined to uh, participate with the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. So they called they... them cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Surrender yeah. monkeys, yeah. yeah. Uh... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> the anti-Semitic pro-Islam Frenchman. <laughs> I love his characters. He's a, he, this is a person that has never existed. <laughs> Uh, oh man those guys don't have a viewpoint they just want to kill people that's just crazy the media don't put crazy people on tv it would just make things worse it's very convenient that all two billion of your enemies are crazy that makes their opinions easy to ignore look the banker continued you can't put people on tv that are saying if you kill all the americans and all the jews you can go to paradise that's just common sense terrorism isn't a valid opinion how do you know unless you listen to their reasons? Are you in favor of terrorism? You are avoiding the question. If the only viewpoints you allowed on television were the ones that you and I agreed with, would that be good? So big deal if the wacko viewpoints don't get on television. You have to do some filtering. How many people have to have the same so-called wacko opinions before they are, in your opinion, worthy of media attention? Asked the French. The French. This is such a bizarre conversation. Did he? Is this based on something that he overheard, or did he make this up out of whole cloth? This, Where is he this getting this? Feels like I have to assume in his head he thinks that like this is a true meeting of the minds. This is a, a great grand philosophical debate. But this is West Wing shit. This is this is Scott Adams like writing one of those scenes in the West Wing where um, a conservative says like. I think that gay people should all be put in a box. And mm. then uh, President Bartlett stands up and says, Well, excuse me, sir. Actually, in the Bible, it says putting people in boxes is bad. Except the other way around. I imagine Scott Adams is probably not anti-Semitic, or he thinks he's not anti-Semitic. Or he like if he has problems with black people, he probably would say he doesn't have problems with Jewish people. Yeah. That hasn't really seemed to come out in his work, and he seems to be overtly defending the Jews or using Jews as sort of a political pawn, as they're often used 
in order to achieve his own uh, atheist machinations. Yeah, I mean it, it, that has that has precedent with the new atheist movement. Like I'm sure you, you did. You watch Religious? Yeah, I watched some of Religious. <laughs> yeah, I watched Religious. Yeah. And the movie that was uh, supposed to be Bill Maher takes down all the religions, but like definitely seems to be treating uh, Israel with with kid gloves. <laughs> Yeah, because the, I mean, the underlying point of the whole thing is is always just, but Muslims are more bad than all of the other bad religions. Yes, which is why we can which is why we can kill a million of them in Iraq. Yeah, and no one will care. Uh, okay, so why do you think their views aren't in the media? You're blaming Jews? That's ridiculous. Jews manage maybe five percent of the media. Tops. <laughs> That's such a funny phrase. I don't know why. What about the other 95%? How do you explain why they don't run all these views? Obviously, it is more than 5%, said the Frenchman. There is no other way to explain it. The Jews control the entire media behind the scenes, but they hide it. There is a simpler explanation, offered the Avatar, as the two businessmen faces registered an ugly combination of surprise and disdain. I'm all ears, said the banker, eager to get the Frenchman off his back. Every group controls its own story, explained the Avatar. Black people control the media's coverage of, of black issues. <laughs> okay. All right. Christians control the media's coverage of Christianity. <laughs> gay people control the media's coverage of gay issues. Women control the media's coverage of... What? <laughs> what? <are> you... <laughs> this is the least informed man of all time. <laughs> disabled people control the media coverage of disabled people. No reporter would risk his career by crossing any of those groups or any one of a dozen other organized groups. So when you say that Jews control the media, you don't mean that the Jews control the coverage of gay rights or women's rights or any other group story. You simply mean that reporters are human and they would know to steer clear of stories that would offend people who could later influence their careers. Oh my God. <laughs> what the fuck? This is the smartest man in the world. <laughs> this yeah. is the smartest oh. man in the world who recognizes all the patterns. Oh. All the media is controlled by the groups that control those media. Yeah. They're... Uh, we finally got into the real truth of Scott Adams, which is someone told him not to use the R word. Oh my God. It just keeps getting better. The Frenchman and the banker both paused, each hoping the other would jump into the argument. The avatar seems surprisingly coherent. After a pause for digestion, the banker looked at the avatar and asked another question. Do you think we should put terrorist opinions in the media? Yes, replied the avatar. The most basic need of any human being is the need to communicate. If you shut down the nonviolent channels of communication, people will find alternate channels. Terrorism is communication disguised as warfare. If you treat it as war, you cannot stop it. When you treat it as communication, you have a chance to replace it with something less lethal. So you would let some crazy sheik go on crossfire and explain why all the infidels should be killed? I would not only let him, I would require it. And oh. I would broadcast it often, <laughs> along with alternative viewpoints. Bad ideas do not survive when they are exposed to the air. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so this is Scott Adams coming out hard against the quote-unquote marketplace of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a free speech absolutist, I suppose. Ex except, uh, oh, yeah, no, he's saying that that's bad. He's right here as a guy who I think does actually consider himself to be that type of person. Here he is explicating why that's bad, actually. No, he's explaining why it's good, oh, because it's good. this point oh, of view the, is coming from the Avatar. The oh, Avatar oh, okay. is the I, one who is speaking this. The Avatar is saying, yeah, we should just let Osama bin Laden uh, sit, come on TV and say whatever he wants. Oh, my God, Rory. Rory. <laughs> 
Let me get this straight, said the banker. Let's say you have one Muslim and one Jew on television arguing over who should own Jerusalem. The Muslim claims that God gave that land to the Muslims. The Jews say that God gave it to the Jews. How the hell does that sort of debate help anything? The Avatar says, there is a third view that must be added to the mix whenever the two views are expressed. You must include a scientist who can explain the notion of location is absurd. <laughs> oh my god, I choked on my spit. You oh, must include a scientist. The problem with Israel Palestine is they need a scientist. If Netanyahu. Airdropped in uh, <laughs> Stephen Hawking. Oh my god, if they had just sat down, if the PLO had just sat down with the Knesset, with a scientist. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Educated people know that in a universe where all planets are moving and spinning, there is no such thing as a holy place, because location is only meaningful as a relationship to fixed options. (laughs) What? (laughs) It makes no fucking sense. In our universe, nothing is fixed. Everything is continually moving. Certainly, an omnipotent God wouldn't know there could be would know there could be no such thing as a holy place. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Mm. He's, he's he's using logic. You see where he's yeah, using logic? This, oh boy! Uh, <laughs> I, I got nothing. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Here we um, go. Perhaps the dirt and rocks could be holy, some would argue, but if so, then we can find a way to share the dirt. Put it in trucks and drive it to anyone who there we wants go. some holy dirt. There we After go. All, we are talking about a desert. I am confident there is enough dirt for <laughs> everyone. Here we Listen, go. Listen, you desert delling dirt clawed farmers, you fucking backwards assholes. Such disdain. Right here, for... Scott Adams has solved this really Palestinian conflict. And it's give everyone one of those little little uh, bottles with like a little tiny beach in it, you know, like a little <laughs> tiny beach ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but just with dirt from Jerusalem. You know, I think he's onto something here. I think. Uh, I, I think, think that they... would be delightful. It, it wouldn't uh, give people their homes back, but it would be a nice little trinket. This book is so fucking good. <laughs> Every new <laughs> sentence is a delight. Um. Every of a delight of just this delusional racism and self-importance. Uh, um, here, so he's now in the Middle Eastern city of Kadum. Okay, finally we're here. <laughs> the, cha- the chapter Avatar meets Alzi. Kadum looked like any other Middle Eastern city, an undisciplined symphony of traffic, buildings, markets, and people, with a mix of modern steel and local construction materials. But a mile beneath the, a mile beneath the surface lived a second city, the home of Alzi. <laughs> he lives in an underground bunker, a city-sized yeah, underground bunker. Like it, it, the 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 Osama bin Laden like Mount Doom uh, <laughs> chart. Do you remember seeing that? Did you see that during the War on Terror period? There was this chart that, like, the, I think U.S. officials were showing of, like, what they thought, uh, I think Osama bin Laden lived in, which was, like, imagine you hollowed out an entire mountain and put, like, a four-story house inside of it. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 ridiculous stuff that, uh, you know, that was put in the imagination of people because they needed to imagine terrorists were, like, supervillains. They, yeah. they had much more, re- many more resources and, like, uh... Uh, many more evil genius machination plans than so, they actually had. Not only did this guy, like, I guess, uh, inflate a city, like just a giant bouncy castle of of a city that just appeared in the desert overnight, 
but he also, without anybody noticing, managed to tunnel underneath it enough to construct a second parallel city. He 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 could he's, he's doing Evangelion, but he constructed Neo Tokyo, so cool. an underground city. No, if he can do that, I think that the terrorists are right. If you can if you can successfully build an entire city and a second sub city underneath it, then you are technologically advanced enough that I think you you probably should be in charge of stuff. I just like how he described is a typical Arab city as undisciplined, and he's just instantly saying, oh, it's backward shithole. Yeah, Sorry. backward shithole where everything is falling apart and also has a yellow filter on it, just like I've yes. seen on TV. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there will be shots of a camel and uh, random ululating that happens in the background. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Here, here's the avatars meeting with Al Z. <laughs> the meeting with Elsie. Uh, actually, I'm gonna skip ahead. This part's this part's a little boring. Let's uh, let's move I, on. To I was it. expecting this to be the the true meeting of the minds, where uh, the avatar meets his his dark self. Okay, actually, no, it's pretty good. Oh, let let's keep going. Let's keep All going right, with yeah. the avatar. Yeah. Um, uh, but, 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 uh, no one spoke as his handlers guided the avatar to a pillow in the middle of the group facing Elsie's. They're on their Yeah, because they're on the ground. Oh, they're oh, not on right. chairs because yeah, they're, they're Arabs. Arabs. Don't, don't understand yeah, chairs. They don't, they don't have chairs, no. Uh, the avatar sat and studied the face of the world's most dangerous terrorist, according to Christians, and the right hand of God, according to two billion Muslims. The avatar felt his chemistry changing and marveled at the power of Elsie's charisma. There was something about his eyes, his face, his posture, and his confidence, such that without uttering a word, he could alter your body chemistry. Use chemistry what? twice. You need an editor on this book, Scott. You needed someone to edit this. Uh, he could alter your body chemistry, make you want to believe him, want to please him. The avatar was not unaffected, but he recognized it for the illusion that it was. Oh, so he's working in, he's working in his uh, hypnosis mastery stuff into yes. this. This is guy, yeah. This is a guy who's a mind master like Scott Adams who can hypnotize people. Yeah, he's got persuasion ability. This is the Scott the Adams avatar. Yeah, Scott Adams is Al Z, and the Al Z yeah. looks exactly like Dogbert, which is what they're <laughs> saying in this book. But brown. Yes, he's brown. <laughs> he's brown <laughs> Al Z always let his visitors wait for an uncomfortable period before he started a conversation. He understood the power of his own personality, and he found it useful to let its full impact sink in. But this avatar fellow seemed odd to Alzi. He wasn't frightened. It had been years since Alzi had entertained anyone who didn't fear for his life, and with good reason. He fed his people a continuous stream of rumors about arbitrary executions and torture, partly because doing so made the real thing unnecessary, mostly because it cut down on unnecessary meetings. <laughs> womp womp. That's, that's some classic Delbert humor right there. Yeah. Oh, meetings. Oh, meetings. My boss is, my boss is an individual. You know, in Dilbert, he oh, fuck. individuals. Yeah. yeah, that was a whole section in the Dilbert Principle, I think. Yeah. <laughs> in uh. You know what's funny? It's in the Dilbert Principle is based on the Peter Principle, which is the idea that you are promoted to the level of your incompetence. Yeah. And for some reason, Scott Adams thinks he's immune from that. Like, he doesn't think that he was promoted to the level of his incompetence. He's like, I must have been rewarded because, you know, capitalism only rewards the meritocratic. So, you know, I, I should be here. Um... Alzi was a practical man who used violence when he felt God would approve to better the lives of his people. Toughness was often necessary to preserve order in the Great Caliphate, but when the appearance of toughness worked just as well, Alzi preferred it. 
Most people would break under the pressure of Alzi's silent stare and start babbling. The Avatar just looked and waited for an invitation. Alzi was puzzled at first, then competitive, not wanting to be the first to talk. But he also had a full schedule that day. Better to get this over with, he figured, since it was more of a curiosity meeting than a useful one. I hear that you know more war plans, he said, in perfect English, through a tight-lipped smile. Is that true? Yes. How can you be so sure that you have it right? I wasn't sure until you invited me here, said the Avatar. Alzi laughed. His five advisors were quick to pick up on the cue and laugh too. <laughs> Each one conscious that there could be consequences for laughing overly long or not enough. The laughter was disturbing. <laughs> it was great. Um, you know you won't be leaving here alive, don't you? Asked Alzi, anxious to intimidate his guest. I can see why you would feel that way, said the Avatar. That wasn't the reaction Alzi wanted. He was looking for some fear, maybe pleading and bargaining. His face turned stern and cold. Tell me how you found out our war plans. I will be happy to tell you. In return, may I ask you one question? The advisors shifted and mumbled to each other. No one ever negotiated with Alzi. It wasn't clear if the Avatar was brave or crazy. Alzi stared at the Avatar with a strictness that would feel like punishment to anyone else. Seeing it had no effect, Alzi smiled. The old man amused him. It had been so long since anyone had spoken to him like a peer that it struck him as funny. Yes, you may ask me one question later, he said. Very good, thank you, said the Avatar. Now about your war plans. You're wondering if someone leaked them to me. The answer is no. I deduced them. <laughs> and how does one deduce so accurately? I assumed you came to your current position by intelligence and not luck. Then I asked myself what I would do in your position. The infidel generals are obviously asking the same question. <laughs> the infidel generals. Why is it that you figured it out and they haven't? Asked Alzi. They ignored the empty spaces. They focused on what you have done in the past. I looked at what you had not done that you could have. <laughs> this is so funny. Yeah, no, For I'm, example, I'm wrapped in this now. You could have used biological weapons in cities on a regular basis, but you knew that it would cause such widespread panic in the Christian world that full-blown war would be inevitable. This is so bizarre. Yeah, this like this book that, came out after the Iraq War happened. I don't that's understand. Still, that's still going. I, the, uh, I, I'm just I I am at a loss for words thinking about imagining a world where this guy is able to do anything without immediately being uh, responded to by like his entire uh, area being bombed to nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's such a just strange misreading of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this you really paid attention to the world where 9-11 happened, happened and everyone just said, oh, okie dokie, well, oh, what yeah. a big whoopsie doodle. Uh, <laughs> your Christian public will never allow the extermination of civilians, Alzi said confidently. <laughs> you wrong about that! You're very wrong about that! <laughs> <laughs> they killed, <coughs> by the lowest estimates, yeah. 100,000 civilians in Iraq. I guess it's own civilians, but they even stand for that, you know. Yeah. But I don't think Scott sees black people as civilians, so he doesn't uh, register oh, their murders. Oh, boy. Uh, so, yeah, it, this it goes on like this for a while. Uh, uh, <laughs> here we go. You seem sure of yourself, said Alzi. There is one hope to end this, said the Avatar. Enlighten me. This is a man-made crisis, based on superstition. If minds can be changed, the problem disappears. What do you mean by superstition? Alzi asked with a threatening tone. Superstition is a belief in the supernatural. 
that something exists beyond nature. You and General Cruz believe God is not part of nature, but somehow outside it. That is, by definition, superstition. It sounds like an insult, said Alzi, displeased. That's the problem with clarity. <laughs> responded the avatar it often sounds insulting this book is like if you could take that famous quote the all vice thing from reddit where he says in this moment i am in in this moment i am euphoric he wrote an entire book of in this moment i am euphoric i'm not familiar with that what, what is oh uh, yeah it's the 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 tweet that is or it's not a tweet it's a reddit post that is emblematic of the uh, of the new atheism era or it's some teenager who went by the, the Reddit handle Allvice, and he said, I made up a quote. In this moment is, I am euphoric, not because of any phony god, but because I am enlightened by my own intelligence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, is this the climax of the book? Is this, like, the, the moment where the this, Avatar... This is halfway through the this book. Is this is halfway through the, the book. <laughs> this is so, the climax of the book. So, so uh, the Avatar is going to fail to logic and reason his way out of... Yes, no, that actually happens in the book. So, spoilers for the ending. The Avatar fails in his plan, but the war is prevented anyway because a cafe owner, who, who's referenced at some point earlier in the book, comes up with the phrase, if, you're, if God is so smart, why do you fart? And then that catches on and stops oh war because it God. becomes a, a mind virus. But oh yeah, the ability that... God you can just explain things to people rationally or there's some rational way to make people disab disabuse themselves of their religious convictions is such a weird, naive, and stupid attitude. It's the attitude of a moron. Uh, so, yeah. yeah but yeah. Scott Adams stopped thinking he was a moron a long time ago. Uh, it, here, yeah, I want to hear more about this. Uh, okay, this is really interesting. So here's the cafe owner. We've gotten to the part about the cafe owner. Stacy's Cafe. The Avatar took a hydro cab from the airport to the offices of GIC. Stepping out of the cab, he felt a strange sensation, like a pattern forming, but faint. It seemed to have at least two centers. He never felt oh, a pattern boy. like this. He's trying to sense a pattern coming. Um, he had never felt a pattern like this. As the hydrocab pulled away, the Avatar stood on the sidewalk, trying to get a lock on the pattern, but he failed. His stomach growled, and the Avatar smiled, realizing that his hunger must have been clogging his intuition. But now the pattern was gone, softening to a vibration. Patterns did that sometimes, <laughs> rising and falling for no apparent reason. The Avatar walked towards a restaurant next to the GIC building, Stacy's Cafe. It was the oldest business on the block looking out of place nestled in the modern architecture of the San Francisco metropolitan area. The Avatar entered and was greeted by the bartender from behind a large oval bar. Hi, can I help you? One for lunch, said the Avatar. We're closed between three and five. Can you come back at five? What? That does... What? Okay. A pink-haired woman in her 60s on the other side of the room interrupted uh -oh. the Avatar's response. She was waving a half-eaten plate of food at the chef and getting agitated. Look at this presentation. This is crap. My name is on this business, and you want to serve crap. If people want crap, they can make it at home. The chef's eyes were locked in a death stare with the pink-haired woman as she dramatically slapped the dish on the table. I want you to care about this place as much as I do. If you don't, I can replace your ass tomorrow. The pink-haired woman harumphed and turned away, then turned back with an afterthought. That reminds me, she said in a softer voice uh, that seemed as though it were channeling an entirely different person. Have you written down all your recipes so I can fire you anytime I want? Almost. I have a few more to do, said the chef. Very good. Give me a hug. 
The pink-haired lady hugged the chef, who smiled and chuckled before returning to the kitchen. I have new pictures of my baby if you want to see them, said the chef over his soldier. So, so this pink-haired lady, who you would think, because now now uh, a differently colored hair has become the clarion call of the that. terrible people. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is a pink-haired lady who's cool. Yeah. This, is, this, this is... is Scott Adams' idea of a cool person. We, we've finally found what Scott Adams valorizes more than anything else, and it is the small business owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the crusty There's small business owner. one person who's smarter and better than the guy who can correctly put a... a circular peg in a circular hole and a square peg in a square hole yeah the one better person a, a middle-aged uh restaurant owner yeah with pink hair who's a little kooky she's a little a, creative a little, little john taffer's lady yeah, yeah. <laughs> she said i'm stacy i own this joint well technically i have a partner but he isn't worth a damn sit down and we'll make you something stacy gestured toward the table in the empty dining room the avatar complied taking a seat in the middle of the sea of white tablecloths Stacy opened the menu in front of him and started pointing. You'll have one of these. No, forget that. I just tore the chef a new one about this dish, so take this one. That's my favorite. I should eat your favorite food? Asked the Avatar, enjoying the show. Everyone should eat my favorite food. Gandhi, unless you're on a hunger strike, you aren't on a hunger strike, are you? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't go to restaurants for my hunger strikes, the Avatar answered. <laughs> one vegetable croute, uh, yelled Stacy in the general direction of the kitchen. A frightened line cook nodded. And a glass of water, please, said the avatar. You'll have wine. I only want water. One Chardonnay. <laughs> I love this is his cool person. This is... <laughs> I love how he writes a cool person in his mind. Yeah. Uh, uh, God. <laughs> Fuck. Also, just uh, as a, a side note, it, it's wild to me that, like, the second most evil thing in the world now to these people is uh, dyed hair. Which also yeah. they seem to be convinced is something that did not exist before uh, 2015. Suddenly, oh. people figured out unnatural pigments, and this is tantamount to um, getting permanent body modification. That you have put a little bit of dye in your hair. Yeah. Well, I think the people see it as like uh, the people who hate it see it as oh, you just want attention. Oh, you yeah. mean like everybody does? Like every single person on earth? You idiot. <laughs> or you, you put you put the manic panic on your hair. I don't know if you have that brand in Canada. Uh, uh, it's a hair it's the hair dye that you buy at Hot Topic. Uh, you put cool. the manic panic on your hair, then you turn into a homosexual, and then once you're a homosexual you turn into a trans, and then children will see it and they will put the dye into their hair and then yeah. they will become a homosexual and then a trans. It's like the signaling thing. It causes a change in body chemistry. The pattern. The children start noticing the patterns. Yeah. And the patterns are too, you know, they're, they're too dangerous to ignore. Rory, I'm going to... Oh, sorry, what? I just want to... You know what this next chapter is called that I'm going to read from? It's yeah. called How Israel Fell, Rory. Oh. oh, boy. It's called How Israel Fell. Um... I, I'm going to read all of this because this all seems especially insane. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think I, I, we might have to get through this whole chapter. Okay. Uh, because what a title. What a title already. He's, he's filling in some backstory for Al-Z here. Al-Z enjoyed the daylight of Kadum, knowing it would be his last chance to feel the sun. His bodyguards cut a wide swath through the outdoor marketplace, staring down anyone who dared to look directly at their leader. Alzi made a point to stop at every other merchant stand and examine the goods. The bodyguards purchased merchandise on his behalf as a show of respect. It was good public relations. 
His mood was somber, weighed down by the thoughts of the upcoming war. He replayed in his mind the path of his life and wondered what he could have done differently. Alzi was educated in a madrasa. Oh. Where he learned to be a believer. <laughs> he was an exceptional student who had memorized every line of the Quran by the time he was eight years old. When he was a teen, he was already active in the underground efforts to destroy Israel <laughs> and overthrow the pro-Western dictators of the Arab countries. By the age of 19, he had become a protege of the most successful planner in Al-Qaeda. Cool. <laughs> the, cool. the, the planners. Cool. Yeah, of course, Al-Qaeda has many planners. That's a job that they have. And soon found himself running operations of his own with spectacular success. He wanted to become a martyr, but his partners in Jihad recognized him as too valuable to waste. His most notable early success was the simultaneously assassination of President Kendall of the United States and Prime Minister Kent of the United Kingdom in 2010. <laughs> Wait, this is still, still LZ, who... LZ, no, yeah. So he, he both successfully... Both of them, he got both of them. Got both of them, and the UN is still just thinking, oh, whoopsie doodle. He killed Obama and Gordon Brown. <laughs> and everyone just kind of shrugged. Uh, it took three years of planning to place the tons of explosives. Wait, I thought LZ was planning to do little attacks that weren't supposed to provoke all out. Uh, Why wouldn't the assassination? Nobody cares if you kill the president. Okay, it's fine. Yeah, nobody. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, it took three years of planning to place the tons of explosives under city blocks in both Washington D.C. and London. So he did the Guy Fox route. <laughs> okay. And it took another year to create fake political fundraising events that would lure his targets to the traps at precisely the same times. What? <laughs> After American special forces operating on a tip located and killed the leader of Al-Qaeda, LZ was the logical successor. Young, brilliant, and completely dedicated to the cause, he immediately put into place the Israel strategy, which was to become his springboard to complete control of the Middle East. The Israel strategy involved convincing the Palestinians to accept a disingenuous peace in return for international promises of massive reconstruction aid. They would wait, letting prosperity accomplish what terrorist attacks could not. What? 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 I, I'm having trouble parsing this. Alzi was the first Muslim leader to realize that the only way they could lose the fight with Israel was to continue fighting. <laughs> Oh my god! I'm, I'm getting lightheaded here. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> Keep going. Peace meant inevitable victory. So it seems like, what? Alzi's reputation allowed him to preach patience to an impatient people. Oh my god! <laughs> Jesus Christ! His cre credibility was unapproachable, so they made peace and waited. Demographics favored the Muslims, who were having children at three times the rate of the Jewish population. Oh my god! Thanks to financial inducements arranged by Alzi! <laughs> by 2035, it was clear that Muslims were heading towards a voting majority in Israel. <laughs> oh. He's doing the great replacement yeah, for Israel! <laughs> yeah, uh, oh my god. Oh well, my I god. mean, I'll give him credit. I thought that it was going to be... Uh, they stop fighting and then just start tunneling underneath every building and slowly uh, chipping away at the foundation until all of the Israeli buildings just fall down. <laughs> yeah, the real one. It took seven years for him to do underground, <laughs> the underground <laughs> attack, uh, the destabilization of infrastructure. 
The Israeli government hoped to solve the problem by restricting voting rights for non-Jews. Oh yeah, they, they've never... <laughs> that's so outlandish. They would never do that. This was exactly what Al-Z had foreseen. Israel was filled with and surrounded by a massive population of angry young men who preferred death to the apartheid and humiliation. Wow! He actually used the word apartheid, which is interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, he didn't. Wow! The apartheid and humiliation they were being asked to accept. This is all over the place politically. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? Maybe I guess when you see yourself as like... good. I think when you see yourself as, like, a neutral, objective observer, what he's trying to do is, no, there are good things on both sides, which yeah. he's, he's constantly making gestures towards that, but not actually accomplishing it because he has a completely incoherent worldview. I guess he has a coherent worldview, which is science. Science makes everything better, but it <laughs> it's not coming to a head with, the, with this prose, I gotta say. Yeah. After years of lying low, Alzi focused the anger of the majority, who were by then universally armed <laughs> and working and living amongst the Jewish minority. The overrun lasted less than two days. It was mostly hand-to-hand -hand fighting with knives, small arms, and homemade explosives. The military were helpless because the violence was everywhere at the same time, in every block, every street, every housing development. Human waves of martyrs stormed military bases. Over a million Muslims died that day, eventually exhausting the ammunition of the Israeli army and the armed Jewish civilians. With their Wait, they superior did that numbers. After also doing electoralism, like first they, they got an electoral majority and then just decided, fuck it, we're going to yeah. kill them all anyway. Sure, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, it's like the Nazis. It's like yeah. the Nazis, Rory. It's, it's oh. very similar to the Nazis. Oh. Uh, oh, the Jewish Israeli back after somebody from Brooklyn <coughs> showed up and said, "This is my house now." Is the same thing as being being Adolf Hitler. <laughs> to the rest of the world, it became known as the Second Holocaust, an unfathomable Jesus and black Christ. moment in history, dwarfing the first Holocaust in both scope and savagery. It happened so quickly that the world didn't Jesus. know how to respond. Christ. By the end of the second day, there were so few Jews left in Israel that military intervention seemed useless. Oh, my God. They killed all the Jews in two days, <laughs> They killed all the Jews in two days! Uh, <laughs> oh, my oh God. No. Uh, countries condemned the atrocities in the strongest words, but they were only words. Yeah, why uh, wouldn't okay. They... <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, they, they, yeah. They, they did this in public where... I mean, I guess maybe he thinks that there's some sort of comparison to the first Holocaust when, you know, when that was happening. Most people didn't really know that that was happening. So I guess, like, that that's why America got away with, like, not directly intervening is that, like, on paper we didn't know that people were going being rounded up and put into camps and murdered. Uh, but, you know, Al LZ did it, and it's just, oh, whoops. There we go, all the Jews. Oh, well, oh well. you know, this is sad. We feel sad about this now. Oh, no. A oh, feeling of no. shame and helplessness gripped the Judeo-Christian world, <laughs> plunging it into a collective mental depression and making it right for the rise of a man like General Horatio Cruz. Alzi's status as the architect of the victory over Israel grew to the enormous heights. He turned his influence against the pro-Western governments of the Arab countries. The corrupt leaders, as he called them, were soon deposed and replaced by Alzi's people. Alzi believed that his success was proof that Allah was on his side. He found it harder and harder to distinguish between his own opinions and those that were coming directly from Allah. 
Now the end game was approaching. Peace with the Christian alliance was impossible because his own citizens would kill him if he even suggested peace. The Muslims felt like winners, <laughs> and they could only imagine that God would let them lose after letting them win for so long. Um, yeah, that is one of the most... It, it, it sort of it gets less extreme after this. But that is one of the craziest things I've ever, yeah, uh, I've ever seen written. <laughs> it's just not, it's not a, a very good reading of the Israel situation. No, no. But the idea that you know the Muslim world has any sort of power to match uh, Israel, which has a fucking nuke. Yeah. Um, why wouldn't they just nuke them? I don't understand. Because. Um... Arabs got a voting majority first, so you're they right. Could, they could yeah. vote against being nuked. I guess you're you're right. You're absolutely <laughs> because when a country uses nuclear weapons, they all have to vote on it first. Yes, and it would be very easy, of course, for Arabs to get a voting majority in the Knesset. That would be that would be practical. That would be possible. Yeah. <sighs> um. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if we're, we're going to get... Oh, here we go. No, I think oh, we might okay. get better than that. Here's the GIC bombing. The chapter that is called GIC bombing. Uh, as predicts drone and terror attacks. Wow, we've gone on for a really long time. This episode... We might have to cut this short because this is already like two hours Fair long. Enough. I think we're going to stop this with the destruction of Israel. Yeah, okay. Uh, but Rory... Thank you so much for being thank, on. Thank you. I'm, I now, I guess I need to read the rest you gotta of read the, We gotta read the entire religion war and, and report back on it. I might have you back to, to finish the completed book. Yeah. Some new select chapters from it. But this is a... I had a great time reading this oh, yeah, incredible this piece of shit. Very this, what might be the worst book ever written. It's not the worst book ever written, but it's in the running. Um, just a, like a, the dumbest speculative fiction of all time. A book where it seems to be putting itself forth as like clearly everything can be solved rationally but the under the undercurrent of it is but also you're a huge pussy if you don't respond militarily uh because they're coming to take your stuff um and also the greatest power that anyone can have is being able to play bejeweled yes <laughs> if you are rational yeah if you if you have a good mind for puzzles and patterns yeah you know you can solve you, this if whole you're, religion if you're thing. good at doing um sudoku uh or as the japanese call it numbers place um you you can be a mind god like Scott right, right there is no place place isn't a fixed position maybe you could take the sudokus and like send them to people but you can't have number place because there is number no place. number place yeah. that, that actually was the original name of sudoku uh <laughs> it, that it was it took off in japan as sudoku after being called number place in american newspapers ignoring it <laughs> yeah but it's yeah you need it you need to put that you need to put that spin on it so you know it was japanese so it was better you know, yeah. number place that's just generic, but Sudoku, there's some there's some shit attached to that. There's some real yeah. Meaning. That that is um, a, a powerful um, and mystical secret from the Orient. <laughs> Sudoku. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Rory, R what are your plugs? What are you plugging? Oh boy. All right. So I always try to say this quickly because it's kind of confusing. Uh, because on Instagram I am Rory Blank, but on Twitter I am at Bone Jail because somebody else had at Rory Blank and got banned, and Elon Musk still has not unbanned that person. So I will never find out who the fuck at Rory Blank on Twitter was. Uh, I've also got a Patreon that where I send people zines every month. Um, I, I don't. 
I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. I would say uh, you should support House of Decline first. But uh, yeah. the one the one thing that I want that would be good for me if I could get more patrons is I really want to buy an office printer like a big Xerox machine with a uh, binding finisher on it because I am tired of, of stapling zines. It takes like six hours of my life every. It's too long. It's too to long to be spent that. stapling. You know, you could get yeah. an intern, but you're not uh, you're not unscrupulous. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't hire anybody unless I could afford to like actually pay them a reasonable wage. Uh, yeah, but I'll... a machine, a machine will do it for free. So yeah, subscribe yeah. to subscribe to Rory's Patreon so or you don't. can get or don't. Uh, you know. Yeah, uh, I've got a shirt design on, uh, or new shirt designs on www.getjackedoffbythepresident.com right now, available until Tuesday, uh, but you don't have to do that either. What I, I would prefer you do is, if you're going to buy anything from me, if you're going to give me any money, uh, I just spent $1,000 on a printer to make art prints. And I really would like to feel like I didn't just put myself into a huge hole buying a printer. And you won't, because we're going to get so many views and listens from this documenting <laughs> documenting this terrible book. People will want oh, to subscribe boy. right away. Yeah. Just, well, just thank you for joining blanks. us. There aren't any other Rory Blanks. There are not. Well, there except for there, that one Twitter are. guy, but he's dead. He died. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being on the show. Thank Always great to so have much. you. We might have you again for more Dilbert Book Club, for more Scott Adams Book Very Club. Very illuminating. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I would like to continue this because this is genuinely one of the most deranged things I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a, have a great day, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.